I um, read out of the New American Standard Bible. I've used it ever since I was a college student. I hate to tell you how many years ago that was. And uh, I believe it's one of the more accurate uh, modern translations of the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, Paul says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Way back when I was in college, I uh, endured a semester of physics and My physics professor began every class in exactly the same way. He would say, class, I'm going to tell you what I told you yesterday. Then I'm going to tell you what I'll tell you today. Then I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And then I'll review. And so every class, he went over and over and over that difficult material until he kind of drilled it into... Most students, not mine, skull. But he knew that repetition is a key to learning. And so the Apostle Paul, being a master teacher, knew the same thing. If you were here last Sunday, you're going to vaguely think, this message today seems kind of like last Sunday's message. And that's because the Apostle Paul is repeating himself. He is making many of the same points again because he wanted to equip these new believers to be followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted them to be able to help others become followers of Jesus, which means to disciple others. And he holds himself up as a model for the Thessalonians and for us to follow. Now, if you're a Christian... You are a disciple of Jesus. You may be a baby disciple. You may be more mature. You may be somewhere along the path. We're all in the process. But every Christian, by definition, is a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And, as we saw last time, every Christian is to be engaged in helping others become more Uh, adequate, more developed followers of Jesus. That's the process that he has called us to in the Great Commission. And as I pointed out last week, if you love your neighbor, you want their highest good, and their highest good is that they be more like Jesus. And so you're going to be a channel for that. Uh, Greg Beale, in his commentary, gives a helpful overview of verses 1 to 12. We're coming to the tail end of that section now, but just as a recap of what it's all about. He said, Paul's witness among the Thessalonians was effective, that's verse 1, because it was based on his bold proclamation of the gospel and uh, the truth of the gospel, that's verse 2. The two motives undergirding and inspiring this testimony 
were that Paul wanted to please God, verses 3 and 4, and he wanted others to please God in order to glorify him, verses 5 through 12. So that's the process of discipleship, that we please God by following Jesus and then that we help others do the same. Now, as we read and study chapters 2 and 3, we have to keep in mind, as I pointed out last week, that Paul is defending himself here <coughs> excuse me, against some very fierce critics and opponents. You'll remember that during his time in Thessalonica, these enemies of the gospel had um, come upon the house of Jason, one of the new believers, looking for Paul. They wanted to arrest Paul. They didn't find Paul, so they dragged Jason and some of his uh, people there in the house before the city magistrates, and they accused them of proclaiming another king than Caesar. That was a serious charge of treason, basically, to the emperor. Uh, Jason got off by just posting a bond, but when he found Paul, he and the other believers said, you guys have got to leave town tonight. And so they slipped out under cover of darkness and went to Berea. Now these critics were saying things about Paul like, Oh, this religious huckster just ran away and nobody's seen him since. He's like many others in this religion business where, you know, he's a charlatan. He's just using religion as a cover so he can get your money. He can get your women. uh, He can exalt himself and have power over you. But he's not sincere. And if he were, he would have stuck around. Instead, when he gets exposed, what's he do? He just turns tail and runs. He's a phony. Don't believe him. Now, Paul is defending his motives and his objectives, not because he wants to look good, but he knows that if these critics can undermine Paul's message, or I mean Paul as a messenger, they will undermine his message. If you can discredit the messenger, then you can sweep away his message. And the message is nothing less than the gospel that results in salvation to those who believe. And so Paul here is defending himself. And last week we saw that effective discipleship is built on a godly message, namely the gospel of God. We also saw that it's built on a godly manner, which is evident love for others, and a godly motive, which is the desire to please God from the heart. Um, Those same themes are woven through our throughout our text that we're looking at this morning. I couldn't quite say it as um, uh, succinctly as that, but we can sum it up this way by saying that effective discipleship is founded on the gospel, same theme as last week, is proclaimed in love through people of godly integrity, and the goal is disciples who walk worthily of God and his glory. Now, in verses 7 and 8 that we looked at last week, we saw that Paul showed himself by way of metaphor as an affectionate, tender mother of a newborn, holding that little one so carefully and preciously, uh, that, that he was a mother to them. Now, he shifts the metaphor to a caring and loving father whose role is to train his children. And the first point he makes is that effective discipleship is founded 
on the faithful proclamation of the gospel of God. Notice how Paul keeps emphasizing the gospel. Uh, We saw it in chapter 1, verse 5. It's in chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9. We'll see it again in chapter 3, verse 2. And it's twice in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 and 2.14. The reason Paul keeps hammering on the gospel is it is the foundation for everything in the Christian life. And if somebody builds their life on a faulty gospel, it's like building a new house on a faulty foundation. Uh, you remember the story Jesus told about the foolish man who built his house on sand and When the floodwaters came, it just swept it away. Uh, And that's what happens to people who do not build their lives on a solid foundation of the gospel. Paul says, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And that word proclaimed means to proclaim as a herald. In that day, before there was mass media, if the king wanted to get his message out to the far reaches of his kingdom... He would call in heralds, and he would give them the message, and they would go out. And whenever, whatever city or village they came into, they would gather the people and say, Thus says the king. The herald was not free to tweak the message to make it more user-friendly. Uh, if it was a difficult message, the herald had to give it like it was. If it was um, not to the herald's liking, He still had to tell it like it was. He couldn't add to it. He couldn't take away from it. He had to give the king's message, even if it ended up in his getting stoned. Now, as we've seen, by calling it the gospel of God, Paul is emphasizing that God is the source of the gospel. He gave it to us. Paul didn't dream it up on his own. He didn't get together with other apostles, and they all cooked it up. It came to us from God who sent his own son to be our savior. The gospel is the good news that God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him, that we can know him, that we can have eternal life. That just seems like, man, everybody would be in favor of that. Doesn't everybody want to have their sins forgiven and get eternal life? But the fact is, wherever the gospel goes, it arouses opposition. It arouses opposition. And the reason is, to accept the good news of the gospel, first you've got to accept the bad news. And the bad news is that all of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard of his glory. Jesus said we all love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. And people don't want to hear that. They would rather hear... I'm a pretty good person. And they would like to hear, if I just try harder to be a better person, surely I can tip the scales and God will accept me into heaven. And they want to be part of that process of somehow qualifying themselves for heaven so that they can take part of the credit. God has to open our eyes to see that we cannot do that. All the good works in the world will not tip the scale. God's standard is perfection. He is absolutely holy without any stain at all. And he cannot accept any sin or sinner into his presence without 
perfect righteousness. Where does that perfect righteousness come from? God sent his own son, Jesus, who took on on himself our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty we deserve. And the great news of the gospel is that God offers eternal life to any person as a free gift if they will come and receive it. Um, If they'll put their trust in Jesus who died and rose again in their place. Now, Satan always attacks the gospel because it's foundational. He will attack it in many, many different ways. I pointed out some last week. But during my 39 years as a pastor now, I have seen the gospel being attacked in all sorts of ways. Let me just share a few with you. Maybe I'll step on some toes, but I hope you think about it if I do and compare it to the gospel. One is called the health and wealth heresy. And it's all over America. It is all over South America. I just read an article on how it is sweeping Brazil, where the Olympics were just held. It is all over Africa. And it basically promises people, if you have enough faith, Jesus will heal all your diseases miraculously, and he will make you materially wealthy. It's sometimes called the word of faith teaching because they teach that by your words you create reality and by your faith. And so you can speak it into existence. Lord, I have a Cadillac in my garage, and that Cadillac will appear in your garage. You can say, Lord, I do not have terminal cancer, even if the doctor said you did, and by faith you will be healed. I think you can see the insidious error of that and how it undermines the truth of God. And when people try that and it doesn't work, then they just throw out the whole thing and say, that that's a bunch of phony baloney. It doesn't work. Another false gospel I have seen in my day, back early in my ministry, I was mailed, without my solicitation, a free copy of Self-Esteem, the New Reformation by Robert Schuller. Uh, I later found out that he got the financial backing of a new ager, a man named W. Clement Stone, and he mailed that book to every pastor in America that they could get their address. I read it, and Schuller, in that book, redefines the gospel. Uh, He says in that book, we should not fear pride. He says we should trust in ourselves. He says that we should stop thinking of ourselves as sinners. Instead, he said, and this is a direct quote, to be born again means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem, from fear to love, from doubt to trust. And that trust is not in Jesus, it's in ourselves. Let me give you a hint. That is not the gospel. It's not even close to the gospel. It's not what the gospel teaches And yet that book, and I've still got it in my office, on the back cover is endorsed by a seminary uh, president and several other theologically uh, theological men. It's not the gospel. Then there's another false gospel that's come along, and sadly it came out of the seminary that I was trained at, and it's it's called the so-called free grace movement. Uh, Wayne Grudem just wrote a book refuting it that I have not yet read, but I've seen 
it advertised. But this movement is more subtle. It redefines repentance as merely a change of mind, not a change of life, not a turning to God from idols, as we saw in chapter 1, verse um, 9. But you change your mind about Jesus and you give assent to the truths of the gospel. But what they would teach is that you could say, uh, believe in Jesus when you're in at summer camp as a youth. Say, oh, yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. You go forward, you make your dedication. And there's absolutely no change in your heart, no change in your life, no evidence that follows that God has invaded your life and given you new birth. But you just go on and on, and maybe even are an atheist later in life, but they would say, you have eternal life because you made that decision to believe in Jesus way back when. And so they change the meaning of saving faith, and they erase repentance. Uh, John MacArthur has confronted that error in a couple of his books, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus and Faith Works. I heard John say once at a pastor's gathering, when he, he said, when I began in the ministry, I had no idea that I would spend a large proportion of my time uh, defending the gospel. But he said, that's what I have done over the years. So I want you to make sure that your gospel is the gospel of God, the one that comes from God revealed to us in Scripture. And I could have given you other examples of other false gospels. Satan is always hitting at it from one way or another to bring down the gospel. But that's the foundation, the only foundation for effective discipleship, for following Jesus and helping others to do so. A second thing we learn here is that effective discipleship then takes place through people of godly integrity. And we saw this last week also. Paul here, though, continues defending his motives, his behavior when he was in Thessalonica. Three things that we learn here about godly integrity. First of all, it's handed off through our example. It's mainly our example that communicates godly integrity. Notice in your text how Paul repeats in verse 9. He says, For you recall, brethren, in verse 10, for you are witnesses. In verse 11, just as you know, he said the same thing back in verse 1, you yourselves know. In verse 2, as you know. In verse 5, he again adds, as you know. What he's doing is he's calling attention to his own example. And here's why. Uh, James Baldwin wrote this way. He said, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. Parents all say, yes, amen. That's true, isn't it? You know, there's a story about four pastors who were talking about what their favorite Bible translations were. And One pastor said, well, I I love the old King James because of the old English. It's so beautiful, and and it produces the most reverent picture of the Holy Scriptures. And another pastor, as I probably would have, said, well, I like the New American Standard Bible because it's so accurate to the original Greek and Hebrew text. Um, A third pastor said, well, his favorite was the paraphrased Living Bible because he had a young congregation, and they could relate to the more um, 
modern English in, in the Living Bible. And they turned to the fourth pastor who sat there silent for a moment. And then he said, um, I, I guess when it comes to translations of the Bible, I like my dad's translation the best. He put the word of God into practice every day. And it was the most convincing translation I've ever seen. It's by example that our kids learn. Now, Paul has already referred to his own example up in the earlier verses in chapter 2. He said he was not deceitful. He was not impure. He said his motive wasn't to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. He said he never came with flattering language to manipulate people for his own advantage. He said he wasn't motivated by greed. He wasn't motivated by personal glory. But rather, he says in verse 7, that like a gentle mother, he he showed his tender affection for these new believers, his spiritual children. And now he compares himself to a loving father who is training his children by example and by verbal instruction. So we need the verbal instruction, but it comes through. It's handed off as our spiritual children and, of course, in the home, our physical children, See our example. The second thing we learn about godly integrity is it means not taking advantage of people in any way, including financially. See in verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He's referring there to the fact we all know that Paul made tents on the side to support himself in ministry. Um, He had a principle that he would not accept support from the church where he was ministering. He was planting churches, new churches. He would get one going and move on. Uh, And he didn't want anybody in that new church he was planting to be able to say, oh, that guy just ripped me off and left town. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul says, I didn't even eat anyone's bread when I was there without paying for it. So he, he did that. He didn't want that accusation against him. Now elsewhere, Paul teaches that it's legitimate for those who labor in the gospel to receive their support in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, he uh, builds that argument. Here's what he said about a local church in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. He said the elders who rule well um, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. I'm not sure I like that analogy, but um, it's referring to pastors who are preaching and teaching. And he says, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And by the way, that last phrase is interesting because it's not from the Old Testament. It's from the New Testament. And Paul calls it Scripture. It's the words of Jesus in Luke. But the point is, double honor there refers both to the respect that someone who is a a church elder who labors in preaching and teaching should be shown, and also to the pay, as the analogy of The ox threshing and the laborer worthy of his wages shows. As an apostle then, Paul had a right to be supported by the gospel, but he explains 
I don't use that right when I'm ministering to a church. While he was in Thessalonica, we read in Philippians 4.16 that Timothy brought support more than once from Philippi. That was the last church he founded. And Paul wasn't begging them for money, but they wanted to help. And so they sent money down to help Paul in his ministry there. Um, So that was the principle. I wrote my um, master's thesis on the subject of New Testament support for Christian workers, uh, New Testament principles of support for Christian workers. And uh, so that was my theme for my master's thesis. But anyway, here's how I would apply this. If you're a Christian businessman and you're discipling a young believer, be very careful not to do something that would make him feel like you ripped him off as you work with him. Um, Maybe you sell him some stocks because you're a stockbroker or you uh, engage him in some business activity and the thing goes belly up and then he's mad at you and that damages your witness of the gospel. About 35 years or more ago when I was first in, in ministry, I had a guy in my church who was selling Amway, and this is not a put-down of Amway. It's a good product, good organization, all of that. But what happened was he told me, I have a goal of meeting five new people at church every week. And I thought, "Um, is he meeting them so that he can help them feel welcome in our church and get plugged in and be discipled? And as I talked with him about it, That wasn't in his mind at all. He wanted to recruit five new people every week so that he could sign them up under him to sell Amway because the more you get under you selling, the more you make. And when I tried to tell him that that was not a good thing to be doing in the church, he tried to insist to me, oh, I'm helping them spiritually because I'm helping them become financially uh, independent and so on. And uh, we had quite a a clash as I tried to say, no, that's off limits. You can meet five new people to disciple them. Praise God, I wish you would. You can't meet five new people to recruit for your business. That's out of bounds. And uh, so be careful with that. But, um, you know, getting people signed up to sell Amway is not discipleship. Uh, That is business. And we need to keep the two separate. Uh, A third thing here about godly integrity, it means moral integrity, and that's beginning on the heart level. Paul is repeating here, he already in verse 3 said his exhortation doesn't come by impurity or way of deceit or whatever, and then he adds in verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly or righteously is the word, and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. He calls the Thessalonians as witnesses because they could see his outward life, but they can't see his heart. And so he calls God as a witness to say, God knows my heart, and here's what it is before him. So we need to walk in reality on the heart level before God if we want to impact others with the message of the gospel. You can't live one way in secret and then on Sunday you put on your godly face and come to church and everybody thinks, wow, at some point that dissonance is going to get 
exposed. And we've seen that happen with a lot of pastors, haven't we? They proclaim one thing, and then it comes out they're living a double life. Paul probably piles up all these adverbs devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly to show how important right conduct is for believers. And the words are a little bit synonymous. Um, Someone suggests, devout may refer to pleasing God, righteous or upright to dealing rightly with others and blameless to our reputation in the world. About 30 years ago, back in 1988, Leadership Magazine published an article that just shocked me, and I've never forgotten it. They reported that their surveys revealed that 20%, one out of five evangelical pastors, viewed pornography at least once a month. And that was before the Internet. And it was before smartphones where you could just punch a few things in and bam, there it is on your phone. And it just stunned me. And I thought, these guys are getting in the pulpit every week and preaching. And in private, they're filling their minds with this smut. You know, that's just shocking. 20%. And you know... How can you disciple others when you know you're not walking devoutly and righteously and blamelessly before God? It doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean you're dealing with your sin and getting it out of your life and you're walking on the heart level before God. You know, Jesus wasn't subtle about this. Jesus in Matthew 5 27 to 30 in the Sermon on the Mount said this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, he's quoting the seventh commandment, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, he's saying integrity before God begins on the heart or the thought level. Now, he doesn't mean literally pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. But he uses that graphic language to say you got to get radical in dealing with your sin. You've got to kill your sin or your sin will kill you. And unless I misread him, I wouldn't have said it so strongly, but Jesus said, if you don't kill your lust on the heart level, you're heading for hell, not heaven. Pretty strong words from our Savior. But my point is this, you can't effectively disciple others unless you know, by God's grace, I'm walking uprightly with him on the heart level. And guys, if you're struggling with this, and I would venture there are many guys here that do, and you're defeated, get help. By God's grace, I've had victory over this now for decades. It was a battle when I was younger. But There is help in the word of God and in the body of Christ. So get the help you need, but walk uprightly on the heart level. So effective discipleship then is founded on the gospel. 
It takes place through people of godly integrity. Thirdly, effective discipleship requires loving personal exhortation and encouragement. Verse 11, just as you know, he calls his example again, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Now, Paul taught, of course, the whole church publicly, but he probably then met with some of the leaders and maybe some of the young men he was seeking to disciple, whether it was one-on-one or a small group. Again, there's some overlap between exhorting, encouraging, and imploring, but there are nuances of difference, as I'll mention. Um, and, And what Paul is saying is, one size doesn't fit all here. You have to tailor the message to the person where they're at spiritually to help them just as a wise father determines where each child is at and teaches them accordingly. Some need exhortation, and that word in this context means challenging or appealing to others to live as they should as Christians. Come on, come on, you can do it. It's that kind of a challenge. The other word, encouraging, as the nuance of comfort or consolation. Uh, it may be that that some of the, I mean, the Thessalonians had come under persecution. And Paul doesn't exhort them, he encourages them. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, um, Paul uses that word when he encourages the church leaders. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, but you don't admonish, you encourage the faint-hearted, And you help the weak, be patient with everyone. So you don't give the faint-hearted a a stern lecture. They need encouragement. You put your arm around them and say, I'm sorry, but let's go this way. And you help them on in the Lord, that kind of thing. And then some need admonishment, and that's implied by the third word here, imploring. It means testifying, where you more or less say, look, Before God, I'm telling you, you need to change. You need to change now. And you give kind of a stern word. You know, one of the things I learned as a father real quickly, especially when we had our second, but I did on our first, I thought naively that kids kind of come out of the womb as a blank slate and you get to write all over what you want on them. Ha ha. Kids come out pre-programmed, you know, like a computer that's got all the programs in it. And you can tweak them a bit, you know, as you have influence. But basically, they have a bent. And you better deal with them accordingly. There are some kids that if you don't raise your voice and sternly rebuke them, they don't even hear you. They're just out there doing their thing. Whereas other kids, if you do that with them, they'll melt in tears. They are so sensitive. And so a wise father knows his children, and he knows what they need in order to motivate them, encourage them, strengthen them to go on in the Lord. Same thing spiritually. That's what Paul is saying. Now, he's saying then, effective discipleship is founded on the gospel, uh, it's proclaimed in love, and it is, uh, comes through people of godly integrity. What's the goal? Well, the goal, effective discipleship, aims at disciples, he says, who walk in a manner 
worthy of the God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. That's verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just want to mention four things very quickly. First of all, note that a worthy walk requires walking. Duh, right? You can't have a worthy walk if you aren't walking. And Paul frequently uses this word walk as an apt metaphor of the Christian life. A walk is a step-by-step-by-step process. takes a while, but you have a goal in mind. I'm going to walk home. I'm going to walk to the store. I'm going to walk up Mount Humphreys or wherever you're walking to. You have a goal, and by going step-by-step, eventually you'll get there if you keep doing it. Well, that's the Christian life. Day by day, we are to walk with God. Remember Enoch in Genesis 5? Enoch walked with God. What a wonderful epithet on your life. And our goal, where we're walking to, is godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We want to be like Jesus. And here's what this means practically. If you're not spending time alone with God, in his word, and in prayer frequently, you're not walking with God. I'm reading a biography of Benjamin Franklin right now, and the man was not a family man. He spent the last 10 years of his wife's life in England apart from her. She was back in Philadelphia. And she wrote him repeated letters saying, my health is failing, I need you here. And he kind of wrote back and said, I'm sorry. And he never went home. He didn't have a relationship with his wife. I wouldn't have a relationship with my wife if I didn't spend time with her. Get to know her and talk with her and share my heart with her and vice versa. You don't have a relationship with God if you're not spending a lot of time, frequent time, daily time in his word and in prayer. You start there. That's a walk with God. Secondly, a worthy walk is the highest conceivable standard. Can you think of anything higher than a walk worthy of God? I mean, that's the highest goal. Elsewhere, Paul tells us we are to walk worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4.1, worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27, and worthy of the Lord in Colossians 1.10. But the fact is, You represent God to others, so you're to walk worthy of God so that others see God in you. They don't read their Bible, but they read you. A third thing to note is that a worthy walk, then, is a response to God's effectual call. When it says the God who calls you, it's referring to his call to salvation. It happened in the past, but Paul here uses a timeless present to describe God calling us. And what this verse is saying is God takes the initiative to call us to himself, but we are responsible then to walk with him. Uh, And and that means we don't earn salvation by becoming worthy. We receive salvation as a gift, but then we want to walk in what represents that gift, God and his holiness. And then finally, a worthy walk takes place in the sphere of God's kingdom and glory. God's kingdom is his rule. It starts now as he rules us. 
It will be culminated when Jesus comes back and we walk in submission now to our king. When Jesus comes back, we're going to see his glory and we're going to share it with him. It's amazing. It'd be one thing just to see it and go, wow, isn't he marvelous? But the Bible says we'll share it. Second Thessalonians 2.14, Paul says, It was for this he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is staggering, isn't it? And then I love 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, where the Apostle John explains, Beloved, now we are the children of God. Boy, what a blessing that is. And it is not yet, uh, not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, here it is, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And then here's the practical end of that. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. So, In this repeat lesson, what Paul is showing is that effective discipleship, then, is founded on the gospel. Uh, It is proclaimed in love through people of integrity, godly integrity, who have the goal of disciples who are going to walk worthily of the God who calls them into his kingdom and glory. Last week, I began the two-part thing on discipleship by asking two questions, and I want to repeat them. The first question for you is this. Are you a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ? And I hope you can answer yes. But if you can't, let me say, don't leave here without making that commitment to Christ. That is your most important need. Far more important than graduating from NAU. Far more important than making a pile of money in business. Far more important than anything you can imagine is that you are right with God right now so that if you should die, he will welcome you into his presence based on Jesus' righteousness being imputed to your account. And that happens through faith when you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Start there. Second question. Are you discipling others? That is, are you deliberately helping others to follow Jesus? That should follow from the first question. And if you're not doing that, then I would encourage you this week, take some time, think about it, pray about it, ask God, where can I be involved? Who do I know? Start in your family maybe. Start with others and have it your intent to help them grow to be more like Jesus Christ. That's the culture That's the climate we want to foster in this church, to make it a culture of discipling where we're following Jesus, helping others to do the same. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you would open the hearts of any who may have come in here without you as their Savior and Lord. Show them their desperate need because they are under your wrath right now and your judgment should they die. Show them the greatness of your love that you sent your own son to take their place on the cross. That he bore the penalty they deserve that if they trust in him, his blood and righteousness 
forgive all their sin and are imputed to their account so that they stand right before you through faith in Jesus alone. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would be helping one another grow in you, that we all would be an example at work, at school, in the community of your character, that we would walk worthy of you in a way that would glorify your name. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.